0: All right, we are in lesson number 32 tonight as we're going through uh, Jeremiah, of course chapter 32 we got into last week, and we deviated last week and spent a significant amount of time cross-referencing what we see in Jeremiah 32 with what we see in uh, Daniel uh, 7, and also in Revelation 5 and 6. Quite frankly, it's a key to understanding that portion of the book of Revelation, As you've heard me say before, Revelation is a complicated book, especially to New Testament churches that don't spend any time in the Old Testament. Because out of 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are over 800 references, allusions, or direct quotes from the Old Testament. So for those of us that remember paper maps... Uh, You remember unfolding the paper map, and you'd see a little red triangle here, a little dot here. And and you don't know what it means unless you look down in the corner and you see the key. And the key says that the triangle mean rest stops, and the dots mean gas. And you go, oh, well, I understand that now. So every time I see that in the map, that's what it means. Well, much the same way as the book of Revelation. What we see in the book of Revelation is actually explained in other portions of the Bible. Unfortunately, there is such an illiteracy of the Old Testament in the quote-unquote New Testament church that most churches don't even touch the book of Revelation uh, because they don't know where to begin. So, And it's ironic, isn't it, that that's the one book of the Bible that promises a special blessing if you study it. So uh, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's part of the devil's deception, the one book that promises an extra special blessing for studying it. And I think one of the reasons you're blessed from studying it is because it takes you everywhere else in the Bible. But most churches don't even touch it, so consequently we avoid receiving the blessing from studying it. Well, of course, Jeremiah was considered one of the major prophets, different definitions. There's either four or five. The silly thing is there's not a minor prophet. Every one of the prophets did what God called them to do and were, in fact, major but you've got Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah, and Isaiah that are typically classified as the major prophets. Isaiah lived about a uh, hundred years uh, before Jeremiah, Daniel Ezekiel, but these three men were all contemporaries with Jeremiah being the senior. I believe, without doubt, Jeremiah would have been preaching his temple discourses when Daniel and Ezekiel would have been young men, perhaps even young teens, there at the temple hearing him preach, repent, or judgment is coming. Then, of course, the judgment did come, ultimately. Over a period of 19 years, there were three sieges laid upon Jerusalem. First two times, Jerusalem surrendered without much of a fight. Finally, the third siege resulted in the complete devastation, leveling, burning of the temple, and burning of the city. And in the first conquest, you had Daniel taken back as a captive with a small group of just a couple of thousand. And Daniel, as you know, wound up serving with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's council and his staff. Ezekiel was taken in the second conquest and wound up ministering to Jewish refugees that had been taken captive to Babylon. And Jeremiah spent this entire time, literally four decades of ministry, in what we would consider a very fruitless ministry. You know, we so often consider a successful revival or a successful service based upon decisions. Well, obviously, that is a measure of success of an evangelistic crusade. But the reality is we're successful when we do what God has called us to do. And it's not up to us to make decisions. It's up to the Holy Spirit to convict and convince hearts. So Jeremiah, we would look at numerically and said, wow, that was a waste of 40 years. However, he is the prince of prophets in the Old Testament and obviously was very successful and did exactly what God called him to do. Now, chapter 32 takes place right here at the end. He is at the end of his life of ministry. The final king, Zedekiah, is on the throne, and literally the city is surrounded by Babylonians, and everything that Jeremiah had warned was going to happen, beginning all the way back in the time of the Reagan years of King Josiah, was in fact happening, only now it was too late. Judgment was at the door. And in thirty chapter 32, verse 1, we read this, that Jeremiah was in prison. And imagine, I took this photo. If you look in the picture there to the right side of your screen, you see that area in red with the star next to it. That peninsula was literally the original Jebusite city that became the city of David, that became Jerusalem. That thin, little, narrow peninsula between the Kidron Valley and the Tiropian Valley there on the west, literally that was all that there was of the walled city. Now, you can see that it expanded over time. and eventually was probably 15 times larger than that when the city fell to Rome in 70 A.D., but this picture is from the old city of David, from approximately where the king's house would have been, just below the temple complex, looking down the hill of uh, Mount Moriah, looking down into the Kidron Valley. So you can imagine, obviously, there probably weren't that many residences out there at the time, and those there would have been destroyed, but out around those mountains and doubtfully down in the valley because that would have been a a zone of vulnerability. But that's where the, the Babylonians were as they had literally surrounded the city and laid siege to the city. And over a period of 18 months were going to try to starve the Jews out or at least so weaken them physically that when they did attack the city, the Jews couldn't put up much of a resistance. But here we find at this point, right at the very end, not only is the city surrounded, but Jeremiah is in jail. Now, he isn't at San Quentin, but he is in a a prison inside the court of the king, King Zedekiah. I've got some pictures up there from a a place that's called Galicantru. This was the home of the high priest. This is where Jesus' false trials began the night of his arrest in Gethsemane. And I show you these pictures because in the high priest's home he actually had a little prison area down where you let the prisoner down through a hole and it was in a holding cell. There was no escape fact, now there are stairs going down there. I actually wish I could have had time to find it. I see my brother Steve sitting in the back. Steve was with us on one of these trips and, and literally sat down in a corner of this small cell where Jesus would have been. And you can see an area there that seems like it was just kind of naturally carved where a person would, would sit uh, and rest. So it was, you know, Jesus was there 2,000 years ago. Well, Jeremiah was in some kind of a similar setting imprisoned why was he in prison? Well, for what he was preaching. He didn't have uh, freedom of religion, actually, in Jerusalem. He didn't have the freedom to speak God's Word. We're moving quickly towards that same predicament here in the United States. But Zedekiah had imprisoned him. Why? Well, it says in the B part of verse 3, because Jeremiah was preaching that God was going to judge the city, that Babylon was going to win, that the Jew- God wasn't going to step in at the last minute and rescue the Jews as he had uh, under with Gideon's leadership or Samson's leadership, or when the city was surrounded by the Assyrians. And, and uh, there at the last moment, God stepped in and rescued them when King Hezekiah was reigning. Or at the Red Sea when they were backed up and there was no place to go, and then all of a sudden God stepped in and divided the water. Well, this time, that wasn't going to happen. They were going to lose. And no matter what kind of resistance they put up, they were going to lose. And the king was going to be taken captive. In fact, as we studied last week, would wind up having his eyes gouged out. Well, that wasn't a popular message with King Zedekiah. And Jeremiah found himself in prison. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was in prison. Of course, we talked about this last week. We will not go into detail tonight. But Jeremiah was told by God that your cousin is going to come see you, and he's going to want you to purchase some property that he has in Anathoth. We talked about how in the Jewish system of economy, the property stayed within the tribe and stayed within the families generally. And you couldn't sell property. You would basically do a land lease for up to 50 years. And after 50 years, there would be the year of return, and everything would go back. So it wasn't a case of socialism where things just automatically went back. But what happened is you could sell the value of your property for up to that length of time. So Jeremiah's cousin was going to come to him and want him to purchase some property. Well, why? Well, the city was under siege. Uh, Goods were were not uh, plentiful anymore. I mean, fresh water was costly. We see in the book of Lamentations that there would be a point where people were so hungry that they were eating their babies. There was a point where they were selling a handful of bird excrement for a handful of gold. Now, which of us would pay a handful of gold for a handful of bird excrement? Well, none of us in our right mind, but they were going to be so hungry at that point in time that they were willing to do anything for anything to eat. Well, obviously, Jeremiah's cousin was wanting to enhance his uh, assets so he could purchase some food. And he went to his cousin. What a great cousin, huh? And because here was the thing that was so crazy about it. He was selling some family property to his cousin, Jeremiah. That was in Anathoth. Now, if you look up on the map, you see where Jerusalem is. That's where Hanamiel, his cousin, was. That's where Jeremiah was, inside the walls of the city. That red circle you see is the Babylonian army. And where is Anathoth? It's behind enemy lines. So he was selling property to family property that was now under enemy control. And you say, what's the point in all this? Well, I'll tell you what the point in all this as we go forward here. Jeremiah was told by God that this was going to happen. So when it in fact did happen, he knew that God's hand was in this. And Jeremiah actually weighed out the proper shekels worth of silver and made the deal with Hanamiel. What a bad business deal. You've got property that you're never going to take possession of in your lifetime, yet you actually own title of. Well, I've got up on the picture there uh, on the upper left-hand corner is actually the uh, uh, seal of Baruch. This was actually discovered inside the city of David and is on display in the museums there in Jerusalem today. But Baruch was the notary, let me say for a, a, a lack of a better term, uh, the amanuensis, the official that documented this land transaction, and then filed it down at the Kennett County Courthouse. Well, it would have been stamped with this seal, making it official, and they found the seal, which is just another one of those testimonies that the people that we read about in the Bible, the places that we study about in the Bible, are real. They're not fanciful. They're not made up. They're historically accurate. And the point of all this is this is a type. We talked about uh, types and antitypes. We talked about Jewish hermeneutics and how there was a literal understanding of Scripture. Then there could be practical applications, and there could also be prophetic implications. Well, from this is a prophetic impl- implication, and it's so critical. I'm going to cover it again real quickly, and then we'll blow through the rest of the chapter. It's largely narrative. But in the book of Daniel in chapter 2, we see the emperor given a vision of what we learn to be the times of the Gentiles. The times where Gentiles ruled and reigned over Jerusalem and over God's people. And we saw this magnificent image from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view in Daniel chapter 2, which Jeremiah explained by the hand of God. This image that had a head of gold, arms of silver, a belly of brass, legs of iron, and then feet of iron mingled with clay that kind of stuck together but didn't stick together with ten toes. And then we see the Bible actually explains what each of those elements are. We don't have conjecture. We know exactly because the Bible tells us who they are. The head was Babylon. The arms were the kingdom that would follow Babylon, Media Persia. The belly was the fake kingdom that would follow that, Greece. And the legs were the kingdom that would follow Greece, which was Rome. And then we see, the Scripture says that in the last days, the days of this last global empire of ten toes translated, 10 kings that will attempt in the last days to integrate a global socialism. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we're at the doorstep. I think that's where we're at today. Now, now, does that mean next week? Could. Might not be for 20 years. But I think we are getting close. And you see all this push towards eliminating borders and centralizing control. Every crisis we have, the answer seems to be, well, we need to centralize global governance in order to better respond to the COVID pandemic. And now I've told you this, and I hope your ears are open to hear it, the next crisis, the next existential crisis that we're going to face is going to be global warming and climate change, man-made climate change. And if we don't come together and centralize global governance, we're going to all... Burn up. I got news for you. The earth is going to burn up eventually. But it's not going to be by our hand. It's going to be by God's hand according to 2 Peter. But in the days of those kings as they are attempting their global empire and they're going to have relative success when we look in the book of Revelation for a period of about seven years. And then three of those kings are going to be put down by their political front man who rises to power And instead of serving them, he becomes Lord over them. We call that guy the Antichrist. And for the last three and a half years, it's going to be devastatingly horrible on planet Earth. Well, in the days of those kings, the Scripture says there will be a kingdom, not of this earth, that takes over the earth and fills the earth. And it's defined as the kingdom of heaven with the Messiah, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, Ruling and reigning literally on planet Earth. Well, we see a parallel story to this in chapter 7. Only instead of this magnificent image, well, I should, have, I, should have, I should have put this up there. Look, we see this stone that smote the image, became a great mountain and filled the old earth. We see down in verses 43 and 44, it says this, and explaining it, In the days of these ten kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. In other words, there's not going to be a media Persia that takes over or a Greece that takes over. It's going to be the Lord Jesus forever. But it shall break in pieces and consume all of these Gentile kingdoms, and this kingdom of heaven will stand forever. Well, a parallel passage is in chapter 7, only it's a different vision. This is a dream that Daniel had. And instead of this magnificent, impressive beast, it's these wild animals. And the first one is uh, in the form of a lion. The second one is in the form of a bear with one arm raised above the other. The third one was a leopard with four heads. And then the final one is this this terrible, terrifying beast that was indescribable. Well, these also are those same kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. How do we know? It's not conjecture. The Bible tells us. I just didn't put those in there. And as you come to the end of this passage about these visions, we see a parallel to that kingdom from heaven which consumes planet earth. I'm sorry, good grief. I'm, 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 I've got two slides I'm looking at here. The next slide and the slide I'm referencing. Daniel 7, verses 12 through 14. This is key. As concerning the rest of these beasts, they had their dominion taken away from them. Yet they're alive. They existed for a while. They ruled and reigned for a while, but then they lost it. And I saw, this is Daniel, in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and approached the Ancient of Days. You've got God the Son approaching the throne of God the Father. And God the Father gave Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, all nations, all languages should serve Him. And His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and that kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so you see Daniel 2, the kingdom of heaven. You see Daniel 7 giving more details on the kingdom of heaven. And you see this image right here, the Son of Man approaching the throne of God the Father God the Father giving him title to this kingdom of heaven on earth. Everybody with me? All right, now let's jump forward to Revelation chapter 5. Good grief, Paul. Somebody that knows how to run a computer, come up here and take over. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. This is after John ascended to heaven at the end of what we would call the church age. And I, John, saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll... Written on the outside, describing the qualifications to redeem the scroll. And then the details of the scroll on the inside, sealed with seven seals. You say, what is this? Well, this is God the Father, with what I will say and show you in a minute is the title deed to planet Earth. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming, I believe, Satan. Proclaiming boastfully, who is worthy To open the book and to redeem planet earth. And John wept, no man in heaven or on earth nor that's died was able to open the book and look thereon. And I wept much because no man was worthy. No man was qualified to redeem the necessary requirements to assume title. And one of the elders saith with me, don't cry, John, for behold, (laughs) there's one qualified, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that root of King David. He hath prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, John said, and in the midst of the throne of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Ladies and gentlemen, when you think about this, we think of God becoming flesh. And living on planet Earth for 33 years. The reality is, there is a man in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father's throne today. That is Jesus of Nazareth. And as I look at this, I can't help but think, and there are other passages, but we'll not time to die, take time to dive into them. That's another study for another time. I believe that Jesus is. Carries all the scars. In fact, I know he does. When he appealed, when he appeared unto the disciples, he said, "Here, look. Check my hands. See the the nail prayer? They're still there. In his resurrected, glorified body, he's still here. Check my side. See? Okay, go ahead. It's still there. When you think of the beating that he took at the cat of nine tails, and with fists and the crown of thorns, and you think of the scarring that he will bear throughout eternity." And to us, it won't be grotesque because it is a demonstration of His love. You know, if you saw, for example, if your, your dad was, was grossly scarred with burns from being in a fire, and, and it was grotesque where if a, an, a bystander came up and looked at him and just, Oh my goodness, you, 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 you're hard to look at. But if you were his son and you knew that your dad broke into a burning house and carried you out and saved your life but was burned horribly in the process, then when you would look at those scars, you would see nothing but a demonstration of your father's love for you. I think that's what we're going to see as we see the Lamb of God with the scars Of His having been slain with seven horns, all power, seven eyes, all vision, all wisdom, and all... Obviously, He is God incarnate. He possesses all the spirituality of the deity sent forth to call to the earth. And He took the book, the scroll, out of the right hand of Him that sat on the throne. Let me point back to you what we just read in Daniel 7. The Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and received for Himself a kingdom. Well, pastor, how do you know that's what is in this scroll? Because Revelation 11 tells us that that is the purpose of what we are reading in Revelation. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So just as Jeremiah was told to do this as a picture prophetically, now there was a practical application too. It was a promise that the Jews were going to come back to the land. But the prophetic picture of this whole thing, this whole message of this kinsman redeemer who is redeeming property, now get the picture, he is redeeming property that he owns title to, but doesn't actually possess yet physically. Jeremiah was told, I want you to buy some family property that you legally own and you own title to, but you won't actually possess it or your family won't actually possess it for 70 years. Well, that's where we're at now. Right now, old planet earth is heavily influenced by, by the God of this age, the prince and power of the air. But guess who owns title deed to it? King Jesus. And one of these days, He is actually going to execute the terms of redemption, as He didn't only die and save us, which we are if we receive Christ, but He is going to redeem His creation All of the scars of sin on planet earth, the thorns, the thistles, everything that God cursed the earth with when Adam sinned, it's going to be Edenic again as you study Isaiah and other passages of Scripture in the Bible. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that all of creation even groans today under the burden of sin, which it didn't have a vote on. It's just a suffering the ramifications of Adam's sin and man's sin. King Jesus owns it. He hasn't physically taken possession of it yet, but He will. When you read the model prayer in Matthew 5, the prayer that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it will one day. I don't know if you looked around yet with Joe Biden in office. It hasn't. We're not there yet. I don't know if you've seen what's going on or read the paper. We're not there yet. The idea that, that uh, well, anyway, we'll stop right there. We'll move right on. Okay, so that is the importance of what we've read up into chapter 15. And it's critical because that is the key that unlocks understanding what the book of Revelation is. What Daniel 7 said, the, what we read about in Jeremiah chapter 32, we see that that is imaging of what Jesus will fulfill ultimately, in those seven years that we affectionately call the Great Tribulation. Jeremiah goes on here, When I delivered the evidence of the purchase, again, he had the title deed, he had purchased it, it was sealed, it was da- taken down to the county registrar's office, evidence purchased under Baruch, the son of Nariah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, "Oh Lord, You are amazing. You have made heaven and earth by Your great power and Your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for You, God. You show loving kindness unto thousands and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. What you read there in verse 18 is is a Jewish hyperbolic expression of God's mercy far outweighing his judgment. And that's used and misused many times. Quite frankly, the Black Liberation Theology Movement uses it to say, yes, you are responsible for the sins of your forefathers 200 years ago. Because God said He was going to curse even into the second and third generation. Alfred Ayersham, a great Hebrew theologian, was a Jewish rabbi that became a phenomenal Jew, uh, believer. In fact, his works, the... Um, uh, it's his study about Jesus that we learn so much of the Jewish background uh, that we have been unfamiliar with. But Eidersham says that that is a Jewish expression demonstrating how God's mercy to the thousands and tens of thousands far exceeds God's judgment to the next generation or to the second and third generation. So again, it's a comparison. Look at look at God's incredible mercy to the tens and hundreds of thousands, a myriad of myriads, and His judgment even into the second and third generation. All right, so that's the point that's being made there in verse 18 as Jeremiah is celebrating God's greatness. Great in counsel, mighty in work. Your eyes see everything. You see everything that man's doing. Nothing catches you by surprise. By the way, if you haven't been in our Bible study before, you can see what the Scripture actually says in verse 19, and you can see Paul's translation into 21st century vernacular as I read it. Give to everyone according to his ways. In other words, everybody's going to give an account for their behavior according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt, even unto this day and in Israel and among other men, and has made the name. You have established a phenomenal reputation What does he point to as what establishes the reputation of the God of Israel? Pointing back to Exodus, when God delivered the Jewish people, this this two million slaves, out of bondage in Egypt. I want to just mention briefly, you look back, I think it's Jeremiah 23. God references in in this passage that there will be a future deliverance that will make you forget all about the Exodus. Exodus. And what's that going to be? That's going to be the Jews returning to Israel after 2,000 years, and eventually King Jesus assumes the throne of his father David. But see, even at this point, the reference, the standard which God had set was consider the Exodus. I established my name among all the nations of the world, among all the so called gods of the world, when I delivered you out of bondage in Egypt. That's still what he's hang, they're hanging their hat on. And has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with great signs and wonders. Think of the Dead Sea Cro- or the Red Sea crossing. Think of being led through the wilderness for forty years, being fed with manna every day, and God literally terrorized the Canaanites that were before them that had far greater military superiority, and God gave them the land of Israel. Verse twenty-two, and God did swear to your forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you're going to have it, and it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in possessed the land. We read the book of Judges. We see 400 years of of living in the land before they asked for a king. Going through a cycle of disobedience and judgment and repentance and holiness. And disobedience and judgment and, and repentance and holiness. And they came in and they possessed it. But they didn't obey what I told them to do. Neither did they walk in accordance to my instruction. They have done nothing of all that I commanded them to do. Therefore... I have brought evil upon my own people. Verse 24. At this point in time, Jeremiah makes reference to what's going on outside the city. Look, you can see the siege being laid right now. Behold the mounts. What's that talking about? We well, see a picture up on the screen. That's Mount Masada. The Romans captured that in 73 AD. There were some 900 Jewish zealots. That were camped out on top I think it's 13 or 15 acres on top up there. They were living up there for a couple of years. They thought they were safe from the Romans, but the Romans built that siege mountain, that ramp up there over a period of years, and eventually got to the wall and eventually knocked down the wall. and before they came in and conquered the Jews, the Jews all committed suicide. They weren't going to be conquered. They would rather die by their own hand than be taken. But that's what a siege mound is. Jeremiah is now making note. God, you brought us into the promised land. God, you gave it all to us. It was just like you said. We disobeyed you. You said judgment was coming. And now look. Look outside the walls of the city. There are the siege mounds. Yep, judgment's here. Judgment's here. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, (laughs) go and buy a field that's behind enemy lines. And make sure it's witnessed and file it with the county assessor's office. Right now, the Chaldeans occupy it, but this is a sign of my promise that one day it's going to be in your hands again. Verse twenty-seven, or verse twenty, verse twenty. Um, um, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God says. Therefore, thus saith the Lord: Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he is going to take it. And the Chaldeans are going to take it. And they're going to fight against this city. And they're going to come and they're going to set fire to the city. And they're going to burn it. And they're going to burn every house of the city. Why? Because every one of those houses were used to worship idols. Upon the roofs of those houses, they offered incense unto Baal. And they poured out drink offerings unto other gods. And they provoked me to my anger. Now, you see a picture on the screen. That is what a Jewish dwelling looked like. We think of getting up on the roof of a house and we go, how in the world are you going to spend time on the roof of your house? You got an 8 and 12 pitch. Well, a Jewish house, the upstairs was basically a patio. And when they didn't have air conditioning, that is where you went in the cool of the evening and in the cool of the morning and enjoyed the fresh air. Well, God says, I saw you up there with your little idols bowing down and worshiping Baal. And I'm going to judge you because of it. And I'm going to bring this city to its... I'm going to level this city. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done evil from the very beginning. Children of Israel have provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. This city, Jerusalem, the holy city, has provoked me to anger from day one. Even from day one, you guys have been disobedient. Therefore, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to remove it from before my face. Verse 32, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, notice both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there are no lost tribes. God is going to bring all of them back. And they're going to have one king, as we have read before. And that, by the way, pop quiz, who is that king? King Jesus, that's right, of the seed of David. Because of all the, okay, and which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, in fact, you're all guilty. You, your kings, your princes, your priests, your prophets, the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You're all guilty. And they have turned their back on me. Now, you see a picture of what's called the Wailing Wall. That's the west wall of the foundation. And on top of that is where the Golden Dome of the Rock now sits. The Alaska Mosque now sits. At one time, that is where uh, Solomon's temple would have sat. Verse, from verse 33, the Jews, even to this day, have a custom. This is facing... This is the most holy place in Israel to a Jew... You can see down in the distance, you see these Jewish men up there praying with their heads against the wall, taking prayers written on pieces of paper and shoving them into the cracks and crevices of the wall. To this day, when you're there, you see over to the left, there is a ramp that goes from the upper level of the concourse down to the lower level where you can actually approach the Western Wall. You can see that. Everybody see that ramp over there on the left? To this day, a... Ultra-Orthodox Jew, those that are all dressed in black, when they get to that ramp, will turn around and walk backwards up the ramp. So that they literally do not have their back turned to God as they're exiting the the temple area. So again, God is speaking metaphorically, you've turned from me, (laughs) the Jews... Through much of their ultra-orthodox tradition, have now turned this into a very literal practice, just like in the Shema, Deuteronomy six four. God says, "I want your, I want my word right here. I want it to be. I want all your thoughts and everything you do to come through a biblical worldview, and I want my word right here. I want everything that you do to be governed by me." Well, uh, the Orthodox Jews now put a a. Prayer box with the scripture from Deuteronomy six. They put that on their foreheads and and put that on their arms and wrap it around their arms. think it very literally when God's speaking. I want you to love me and serve me and obey me and don't turn your back on me. And anyway, that's where we. That's how that's been applied today. <clears throat> you have turned your back on me and not faced me, though I taught them. I and again a a. a It's not like God takes a nap and gets up early in the morning, but this is a figure of speech expressing His diligence and His efforts to try to draw obedience out of His people. Rising up early and teaching Him, yet you have not listened to my instruction. And they set their abominations, idols, in the house. They actually had idols in the temple complex at times, which is called by my name, and they defiled it. Now, God's giving a list of charges against them, why he's going to judge them. And on top of that, they built high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom, the southern valley below the city of David. And they burned their children alive in the fires of Moloch, which I didn't command them to do. I mean, what kind of an insane thing in that? How in the world did anybody come to think of that? That's what neither came it into my mind that I should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. I didn't ask him to do that. That is heinous. You see there the city. You see in the upper left behind the text is where the temple complex is. You see the Kidron Valley separating Mount Moriah from the Mount of Olives. You see the Central Valley, which is on the west side of the Mount of Olives. I'm sorry, separating the Mount Moriah from Mount Zion. This nearest to us is technically Mount Zion. And you see that southern valley that comes directly towards us and then turns. That is the Hinnom Valley. And it was in that area that God specifically said is where you built these altars and you would bring your children and burn them alive, offering them to false gods. By the way, this is a picture. It's a beautiful valley. This is the Hinnom Valley south of uh, the old city of David in Jerusalem today. And now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I'm your God regarding Jerusalem, whereof you say, It shall be delivered unto the king of Babylon and the sword by the famine and the pestilence. By the way, that is a consistent judgment. You will find that mentioned in all the books of prophecy, including in Revelation chapter 6. The judgment that will be poured out on the planet during the time of tribulation. The sword, the famine, the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries. Jerusalem, or the Jews, are going to be judged The city's going to be leveled, but I'm going to keep my promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to gather your descendants out of all countries. They're going to return to the land. Remember how this chapter started. Jeremiah was told to buy property that he owned title to, that his family wouldn't actually occupy till sometime in the future. That's the point. God said, I'm going to drive you out of the land, but I'm going to bring you back, ultimately. And the kinsman redeemer, the Messiah, The Lamb of God will redeem the land, and you will, in fact, occupy it. I'm going to gather you out of not just Babylon, out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in my great wrath, and I will bring them again into this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Let me just emphasize this again. From the time of Zerubbabel's return in 536 536, until today, has Israel ever dwelled safely? No. They've been in a fight ever since they came back. You remember initially when they were beginning to rebuild the temple complex that you had the Samaritans uh, threatening them. They had to build with one hand and have their sword with the other because they were in fear of their lives even then. And you look throughout the last 2,000 years of history. They haven't dwelled safely in the land yet. But they will... And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, God says, and I will give them one heart and one way, and they may fear me forever for the good of them and for their children after them, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. We don't have time to get into it. We reference that in Jeremiah chapter 32 a couple of weeks ago. Or actually, chapter 31, 32 a couple of weeks ago. Um, No, I'm sorry, chapter 31, a couple of weeks ago, we learn of the New Covenant. Also, Ezekiel chapter 36 references the same thing where God says, I will put my spirit within you. I will write my law on the tender, soft heart rather than carve it on stone. That will happen. I make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will do them good, in other words. But I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do good. I will plant them in this land. Let me just stop here for a minute. What's God talking about? What land is God talking about there? Is this a metaphor for heaven? No. It's talking about the Jews being back in Israel, the very land that their forefathers once occupied, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the lot. Surely, with my whole heart and with my whole soul. No, it's God saying, Cross my heart and hope to die. Obviously, that's a joke. He can't. Thus saith the Lord, <clears throat> Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, I'm the one bringing this judgment upon you. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. I'm, I am God. I am using Nebuchadnezzar to judge you. I will also bring upon this land all the good that I have promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the fields, "...shall be bought in this land, wherever you say, it's desolate, without man or beast. It's been given away to the Babylonians. You Jews will return. You will buy fields. You will give evidences. You will seal them. You will take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, which, by the way, is where Anathoth was. The two southern states, Benjamin and Judah, and Jerusalem was right on the border between Benjamin and Judah." and in the places around about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the south. Basically, he's covering it all. For I will cause them to return from their captivity. Who says so? The Lord says so. And that brings us to an end of chapter 32. Isn't the study through these Old Testament books of prophecy amazing? And uh, we may get into this some point in the future. We've taught on it before, but think about it. The Jesus of the New Testament is talked about through the entirety of the Old Testament. And the most used message of the first church, as is recorded in the book of Acts and throughout the book of Acts, was evangelists like Barnabas... And Paul and Timothy preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and only having what we would call the Old Testament. Now, most of you have probably been taught evangelism either through uh, sharing Jesus without fear, either through um, 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 oh, what is uh, what is d james kennedy 's work evangel uh, explosion, uh, thank you. Or, as growing up in a Baptist church, the the old standby, the easy, was called the Roman road. You could begin in Romans 3, go to Romans 5, to Romans 6, to Romans 10, and you could lead a person to everything there is uh, of saving faith and never leave the book of Romans. Well, they ask you a question. Could you lead a person to faith in Christ not using the New Testament? Yes, you can, and we should be able to because everything in the New Testament is pointing out, referencing promises. Well, Isaiah is one, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Psalm 110. I mean, there's a a number. Understand that Jesus said, the entirety of the book is written of me, including Jeremiah 32. Because the whole point of this little detour over into Jeremiah buying a of property that he would own title to, but would never actually take possession of, was not explained to us until we get to the book of Revelation. In fact, the entirety of the book of Ruth is there for no purpose until we get to the New Testament and we learn of the kinsman redeemer uh, marrying a Gentile bride. And then it's further explained again in the book of Revelation. So all of the book points to Jesus. And it's marvelous to study and to consider. And quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, it encourages me to teach this on Wednesday nights because I get tired just like you all do. And trust me, if you think that you all are the only ones that face temptation or trials, you're wrong. I can promise you your pastors face at least as much if not more. Because if Dan or I were to fall into some great sin, it would affect hundreds or thousands. So don't think for a minute that we aren't targeted. And we get lost in the headaches and the frustrations of living life in these arthritic bodies on planet Earth with criminals in the White House. And when you get in Scripture and you see how marvelous this is, just what we studied tonight and where we went to throughout the Bible tonight, my goodness, what an encouragement to be reassured that we do serve a God in heaven who is in control. And none of this is taken Him by surprise. In Romans eight twenty eight, although I hate it, really is true and really does apply. I'm one of those little childish Christians that want everything to be good for me today.